we meet with God in his word to submit ourselves to him, to renew our minds about what is true about him and about us and about the world and about sin and about heaven. It's to preach to our hearts again and again the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why a plan to read through the Bible in a year is our main homework. That gives us a daily opportunity to cultivate nearness to God in his word. But we don't end with Discipline 1. You have it on the back of your notebook. Discipline 2 is the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. Now, as women, we have a spiritual influence in our homes, and we need to learn how to make the gospel central in the way we use that influence. We need to place a priority on spiritually influencing our households with our heart for Christ. Now, what do we mean by household? Well, primarily, we're talking about relationships with the people with whom we live. It could be our family, or it could be our roommates. It could be husband and kids. It could be parents and brothers and sisters. Um, It could be friends who are in your house a lot. Um, Now, why do we want to make the people in our home such a priority? Well, it's because we see those people more consistently than we see anyone else. It doesn't matter if it's roommates or family. Those relationships need to be our priority, making sure that we're bringing Christ and the gospel to them, being an aroma of Christ, making an impact in those relationships. Scott Maxwell, you heard last week, used that phrase, don't play leapfrog. We can't play leapfrog over our own heart and our own sanctification, our own walk with Christ, and we don't want to play leapfrog over our homes and our household relationships. Discipline, too, can reach beyond where we live as well. In many cases, we have extended family relationships that we have just a huge opportunity to invest in, whether it's parents or grandchildren. Um, We just have a lot of opportunities to be the presence of Christ to those relationships that are closest to us. But discipline, too, is about growing as a woman who has a heart for her household for being the aroma of Christ there in both word and in deed. And then discipline three is ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Now, to explain this discipline, I have a little story for you. We all know that there are different kinds of jobs. There are some jobs that really can be done by just about anyone. Um, For example, I had a friend in high school, and she was a girly girl. She liked bling before we even used that word. Um, she She was a really hard worker. She grew up on a farm, but I am certain that she had never looked under the hood of a car. And so her first job was awesome. She delivered auto parts, but that was fine. All she needed to know about cars was how to drive one. She didn't need to know a thing about how they worked. That was fine for that job. But a lot of jobs aren't like that. Imagine a personal trainer who didn't exercise, right? She, she would be out of work in a hurry because people need to see that she practices what she preaches. Um, she needs to show her clients that she believes in that which she's promoting. And so is discipline three. The church does not need warm bodies to deliver auto parts. And that's why our leaders here at Grace Bible Church have put these disciplines in place for us to help us establish priorities. Uh, Remember that the heart is the wellspring of life. Everything flows from discipline one. If our heart is full of God because of the word of God and we're caring for our households with our heart for God, then we're ready to care for others 
and to serve them and to point them to the only hope that there is in God's word. It doesn't mean we have all the answers, but it means we know where to look. And we're willing to walk with somebody, take hold of their hand and say, let's, let's go find the answers we need. So, you, I know you know this. We're not saying that you stick with discipline one until you got it down, and then you can forget about it and move on to discipline two, and then when you got that one figured out, you can close the door and walk out and take care of the world. That's not it at all. These all need to be happening together and simultaneously, but they just help us evaluate, am I caring well for my heart? Is that being lived out in my household so that I'm at a place where I actually have something to offer to those beyond my household? Um, all right. So our goal is to keep all these disciplines in front of us and to ask God to grow us as women who bring him glory. So those are our disciplines. We'll review those every week. But today we're going to begin our teaching on the heart with looking at the gospel's impact on our heart. And you got a little bit of a preview from Scott last week on this. Um, so this is not completely new, but as Scott said last time, understanding what the gospel has accomplished in the life of a believer is central in Wellspring and Build. When we talk about shepherding our hearts with the gospel, it's truths like these today that, we'll, that we're going to look at today that we will return to over and over again. So this is foundational. This is the big picture. Now, you received a brochure when you came in. And if you have space, go ahead and open that up in front of you, maybe at the top of your table, or maybe you can share with the person next to you. Um, and just, I, I, just want you, I just want to show you that what you have on these worksheets, um, did everybody get a colored version of the worksheets where the back page is yellow? Everybody has that? Lauren, do you have that? I think that one on, the, on your table, Lauren. Sorry, she's my daughter. I can call her out. Thank you. Um, you have both. And I just want you to understand that the information on both of these is just about identical. This um, is in a form that will be helpful for ongoing use. You can keep it in your Bible. You can use it in your prayer time. You can use it to remind yourself of a lot of gospel truths. You can use it to encourage a friend with gospel truth. It's just a, a convenient format. We want you to use it and wear it out. Um, but the worksheets that you have are going to be more helpful for note-taking. Um, there's space to write. And then you also can see that um, on the worksheets, there's a, the picture that goes with the text underneath, they line up. And on the brochure, the text underneath points to the pictures. So don't, don't get confused by that. The little box that says event goes with the information underneath it. But these gray and yellow pictures go with the information that's in the new creation box. So if you're looking at the blue box, look where the point is at the top of the box. And that takes you to the pictures that belong with it. I probably just that made that way more complex than it needed to be. Okay. And then I got to use the whiteboard. Okay, it's not as yellow as your as your little diagrams because that doesn't show very well, but it's kind of the same idea. And since we had it, I just thought we would use it. Okay, any questions about your materials? Crystal clear. Okay. Okay, you can see that there is a lot on this chart. 
Um, and understanding what we see here is going to take time. We need to let it be a process of growing in our understanding. Hopefully we'll never quit growing in our understanding of the gospel, of what God has done for us in the gospel. It's like looking at a forest today. And we are going to look at some of the individual trees, but I don't expect you to remember all the details about every tree. What we really want to go for is the big picture. This is a look at the gospel, and it's a really big look at the greatness of God and the great salvation that he's purchased for us through Jesus Christ. So essentially, that's what you have in this chart. It's a really big look at the greatness of God's salvation work. And the reason we're going to do this is twofold. If you walk away with nothing else today, here's your take home, all right? Just right out of the gate. First of all, we must shepherd our hearts. We have hearts that are in a condition that need to be constantly tended with God's word. Um, And the second is that this gospel, these truths that we're going to look at today, they are essential for shepherding our heart. So our hearts are in a condition in which they must be shepherded and they need to be shepherded with the gospel. There's your take-home message. So I really am hopeful that this is going to be encouraging And you're going to find assurances, you're going to see some warnings and maybe some motivation that we all need to persevere in our Christian walk. So let's just start by overviewing the pictures, kind of my rendition on the board or what you have across the top of the blue brochure. Um, And remember, those pictures are the same as what you have in the worksheet. But you'll notice that the figures have an inner man and an outer shell. Um, And that inner man is who we are at the heart level. We already talked about that. It's who we are inwardly before God as God sees us. It's what we call the heart. And then the outer shell represents our physical bodies or our members. It's our hands and our eyes and our mouths. And it's important to understand that our members always manifest what's in our heart. We mentioned that last week as well. Luke 6.45 says, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. So what comes out of our members reveals what's in our hearts. Now first, over on the left, or page one of your worksheet, we have unregenerate man. That's who we were apart from Christ. And then you see that word event. That's conversion. That's when we become a follower of Christ through the gospel. Because people over on the left only need one thing. And it's the gospel. Now, even though this is an event that happens at a point in time, there's a lot that goes into that event. And so that's why in the pictures you just see that vertical bar, but there's a whole big box of text that explains that. There aren't any people that go with the event because it's just a point in time. And and you can see that on the second page of your worksheet, that's probably clear. And so that's conversion. And then on the next page, um, which is page three of your worksheet, you see the gray and yellow figures, or my kind of brown and orange figures on the board. And it says new creation up above the top. And the worksheet has a tan heading that says processes, characteristics of the mixed condition. This is what the Bible calls the new creation, or the new self, the new man. This represents where we are right now in the Christian life. So here, the inner man is fundamentally different um, than what he was before, when he was unregenerate. But the outer man is in the process of changing. So the color is changing from gray to yellow as you move to the right. 
And then farther to the right, on page four of your worksheet, there's another vertical line, and that represents death. It's what the New Testament calls sleep for the believer. We continue to exist, even though our body is gone. And though the outer man is dead, the inner man lives on. And notice that it's all yellow. We will no longer be battling sin. We will be with Jesus. And then you have one more figure um, that represents what happens at the resurrection or the rapture when we actually get a new body, a glorified body. And that word rapture just refers to when Christ comes and catches up believers in the air to be with him. First of all, he gathers those who have died and gives them new bodies, and then he um, gathers those who are still alive. And that's when we get those resurrection glorified bodies. So that's just an overview of the pictures um, that we're going to use as we talk about these gospel implications for our heart. Now you can see, again, that there is a lot of information below those pictures, and we're not going to begin to cover all of that today, um, but I went ahead and included it on the chart um, so that you just have a tool that you can continue to use to grow in your understanding of what Christ has done for you in the gospel. Um, so we can just all be spurred on in our walk with Christ. Excuse me. Okay. So we're going to look right now at the first page of your worksheet, or the left side of your chart. If you are not a person who cares about taking notes, you can just stick with the chart, the the brochure. Um, But if we really want to understand the gospel, if we want to understand it for the sake of evangelism, for the sake of shepherding our own hearts, and for the sake of encouraging our sisters in Christ, um, then we need to start with who we were before Christ, who anyone is apart from Jesus. And you can see the gray box there that says unregenerate man, the unmixed sinful condition. It's who a person is without Jesus. And the verses in this column describe all of us before the gospel had impacted our lives and made us new. This is our identity apart from Christ. Now, it's always my preference to have us open up the Bible together to read the verses, but because there are so many this morning, um, if it's helpful for you, you can just listen as I read the verses. And if we're going to park in a verse a little bit longer, I'll let you know so you can go ahead and turn there and follow along. Um, But that's just your preference. Um, But let me go ahead and read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And I want you to listen to what it says about us before we knew Christ. Verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you're going to see these on your chart. Verse 2, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the sins that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Did you notice there in verse 3 that there was no disagreement between our flesh and our mind? They were in total unity about pursuing the course that they were on. There was no tension between our flesh and our mind. And then listen to verse 12. It says that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You have those on your chart as well. That was our condition. We were without hope. We were without God. Colossians 1.13 says, We were in the domain of darkness. 
We were under the authority and the power of darkness. We were under the control of darkness. And it blinded us to our lostness and to the danger that we were in. Titus 3.3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient and deceived. That's why we didn't understand how lost we were. We were completely deceived. Titus continues, We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We were spending our life in malice and envy. We were hateful. We were hating one another. See, sin ruled our choices. It ruled our attitudes. It ruled our relationships. It ruled us. Romans 6 tells us that we were slaves to sin. You can see you have so many more descriptions there in your chart of the unbeliever. Um, But we're going to go ahead and summarize some of the key features of the one who is unregenerate, who's not a follower of Christ. It's what every believer used to be. Now, first, we were in an unmixed condition. There was nothing in us that would disagree with what we were doing as slaves of sin. Remember Ephesians 2.3, we indulged the desires of our flesh and our mind. They were in complete agreement. So therefore, there was no fight within. We weren't fighting against sin, and we certainly weren't fighting to get Jesus. We were dominated and enslaved by sin. Just like we saw in Titus 3.3, sin dominated and ruled our choices, our attitudes, and our relationships. We were unable to shepherd our hearts away from sin and to God. When we did try to battle sin, when we tried to change, the best we could do was to trade one sin for another. But if we ha- if we had any success at all. Um, but there was no turning to God in it. There was no desire to glorify him. And there was no humility. The whole time, we couldn't see that our best efforts were just filthy rags to God. We weren't earning anything from God but wrath. It was just behavior modification. Now, this is just an aside, but this is a reason why we want to be diligent with our children to shepherd their hearts and not just their behavior. Their behavior needs to be shepherded as well. But we want to shepherd their hearts. Um, For example, we don't want to be content to have a child who has learned not to take a toy away from another child but is very self-righteous and proud about that. There's still a heart issue there that we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to help them see that they've just taken off the stealing and put on the self-righteousness, and they still have a huge need for the gospel. There's still a sin issue there that needs to be dealt with. Well, our final key description of the old condition is that we were under God's wrath and judgment. There is a penalty for sin. Just look at what's in that column. How could God be just and not punish that? What you made of yourself, what you earned, what you loved, how could he not judge you for that? How could he not judge me? God has holy, righteous wrath against sin. There's a penalty, and judgment will come. It must be paid. The good news is for the believer is that we don't have to pay it, because a substitute paid it for us. So that is our past. That is our identity apart from Christ. All that we made apart from Christ, that is the bad news. And we need to understand that bad news because it gives us a heart for those who are lost 
And it's what grows us in a deeper and deeper awe for God and what he's done for us in the gospel. It's good to look in the rearview mirror. You know, we don't live there anymore, but parking here and just taking the time to remember what we've been saved from makes the rest of what we're going to talk about so sweet, and it makes it keep growing sweeter. Now, if we were trying to figure out a solution for that kind of a heart, we would probably take that heart and put it right back over here, right? A pure heart, unmixed condition, no battle with sin. Wouldn't that be great? But that kind of unmixed condition is something that, as believers, we're still looking forward to when Christ comes again or when we die. So look at the right side of your chart with me or page four of your worksheet. It's in the yellow where it says glorification, unmixed, sinless condition. Now, under the yellow header on your worksheet, on the left side, you see the words, if the believer dies. And then you see some descriptions of death for the believer. Philippians 1 says that death is gain. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that to die is to be with Christ and to be at home with the Lord. And that was why Paul made it his ambition to please the Lord. And then moving to the right on your chart, after we die, there's a resurrection, and we get that new body we talked about. Or if we're one of those who's living when Christ returns, we skip death and we go straight to the new body. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 describes, that rapture that we mentioned. And 1 Corinthians 15 describes those new resurrection bodies that Christ will give us when he comes. These weak, perishable, sinful bodies that we have now will be gone. And in their place, we will have imperishable, spiritual, glorious bodies that never die and that never sin. Is that amazing? They will be perfectly suited for praising and serving God forever. Go ahead and turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read verse 2. This verse gives us another look at what happens when Christ returns for us. Okay, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we'll see him just as he is. First John 3, 2 is just a little verse, but it tells us that when Christ appears that we're going to be like him, and that we're going to see him as he is. We're going to see Jesus, and we're going to be like him. That's a big deal. The resurrection is a big deal. We have an amazing hope. So understanding something about our future hope, being home with Christ, him coming again and raising us from the dead and giving us resurrection bodies, helps us think rightly about our pursuit of godliness right now. Look back at 1 John 3.3. It says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, fixed on Jesus, purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, why would we do that? Why would we purify ourselves and prepare to meet Jesus? Other verses on the chart tell us that our future hope is why God's people make it their ambition to please God and why God's people persevere. So why is that? Why would the future drive us to be pure and to please God and to persevere? Is it because what Christ did on the cross wasn't wasn't enough? 
there any insufficiency to what Christ has done on the cross? If you're not sure, by the time you're done today, you will know. No, the answer to that is no. He's accomplished everything we need. But let me ask you another question. Why does a bride prepare for her wedding? Okay, has any of us ever met somebody who went and planned a wedding with the hope that God would give her a husband? I planned the wedding so God now gives me the man. That's not how it works, is it? You plan the wedding because of the love that you already share with that groom. And as because of that love, the woman anticipates that day when the relationship will, will be in a whole new season. And so in much the same way, we need to understand that our obedience and our pursuit of purity and perseverance and all of those things, they don't earn God's favor. There's nothing lacking in what Christ has done. They don't earn us forgiveness. Any attempt to establish our own righteousness before God will only offend him. That's just legalism. But rather, a believer wants to purify herself and wants to please the Lord and wants to persevere because of what Christ has already done for her in saving her. It's because of the relationship she already has with him. She's hoping and she's confident that he's going to appear again. She's going to see him as he is and she's going to be like him. And we're going to be home with him forever. And we want to be ready just like that bride wants to be ready for her wedding. So some key descriptions of this new condition is that it's an unmixed condition of the very best kind. There's no fight within. It's perfect slavery to God, perfect slavery slavery to righteousness and obedience. There's no more need to shepherd our hearts away from sin and to God because we're home with Jesus. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Now, how can a person have this kind of hope? How could we ever move out of what we saw on the left and have this to look forward to? Well, it's all because of the gospel. So now we get to talk about everything that's inside that little bar that says event up at the top. What God has done for this kind of a wretch um, that was me and that was you that we looked at over in the first column. It's what God has done for us. So this is on page two of your worksheet. And as we go through this event, what is key about what you see on this page is that this is what God has done. There's only one set of fingerprints on this, and they are God's. Um, And that's why this is the best news of all. This is a work of God alone. So we're looking at this event conversion. Remember, there are no people that go with this section of the chart. And first, we're going to see three foundational truths upon which all of the other gospel benefits rest. Now listen from Luke 24, verse 45. This is Jesus speaking. He's been raised from the dead. And these are among his last words with his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And it says, verse 45, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer. That's the first foundational truth. And rise again from the dead the third day. That's the second foundational truth. And then number three, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So here they are again. The three foundational truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ are, first of all, Jesus Jesus crucified for sins. That's what it means when it said that he would suffer. Two, Jesus raised from the dead. And three, 
proclamation of repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead, and forgiveness of sins for those who repent and believe. Those are the three foundational truths of the gospel that Jesus laid out, and it's what Peter proclaimed, and it's what Paul proclaimed. These are um, what's in those other references that you have under foundational truths in your chart. Um, And you'll see that those foundational truths are repeated over and over again in the gospel mission. So now let's look at the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are things that God does when he saves a sinner. These are all part of this conversion event. And all at once, these benefits are applied to us. We're not talking about processes in this column, and we're not talking about things that we accomplish. These are accomplished by God alone. And that's what's key. What we're going to see here is God's work. Now, we're going to have some kind of theological vocabulary here, and I will be honest. I can get kind of intimidated by these words, like being afraid of saying them wrong or something. Um, But we use specific language in all kinds of fields. We use it in cooking, and you might use it in your, your work or your crafts, your hobbies. Um, sports does this. That we all there's specialized vocabulary that make it clearer to understand what's meant. Um, if you ever watch football, you'll notice that they don't say that he grabbed the guy around the waist, he pulled as hard as he could until finally he landed on the ground. No, they don't say all that. They just say he got tackled, right? And so when you watch, you get the context, you understand what that means. And so the words we're going to see today are good words if we understand them. So we're going to learn what they mean. And they're going to enrich our understanding of the gospel. So, um, again, we're in the event section, page two of your worksheet, and we're looking at the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And first you see a summary of this gospel event that Scott talked about last time, penal substitutionary atonement. Penal is like the word penalty. Remember, we saw in our key descriptions of unregenerate man that there is wrath against sin. God is a righteous God who in his righteousness will not leave sin unpunished. That's what's meant by penal. There is a penalty. And then substitutionary just means one taking the place of another. We're given a picture of this throughout the Old Testament, with a lamb being sacrificed for the sins of those under the Old Covenant. The lamb took the place of the sinner whose sins were covered. In John 1.29, John the Baptist borrows that Old Testament imagery of a sacrificial lamb, and he declares of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was the substitute lamb who shed his blood so that our penalty would be paid. And then atonement, if you take that word atone and break it apart, you have at one. And atonement is God's work to make you at one with himself. So penal substitutionary atonement means that our penalty had to be paid by a substitute so our sin could be atoned for and we could be made right with God. That's the core of the gospel. And like Scott said last time, when we're talking about the gospel, we need to be thinking, am I talking about a penalty that needs to be paid by a substitute to atone for sin? And then the rest of these benefits we're going to talk about are going to help explain that phrase. Um, Hi, Julie. I know this is awkward, but I'm really glad you're here. And this is going to make a lot more sense if you get the handouts. Allie, would you help me make sure she gets the handouts and stuff? Okay. Thank you. 
Okay, so we're going to start with regeneration. That means to be born again. That is when God makes us alive spiritually. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Listen to why God makes us alive, to why he made us alive. And you looked at this in your homework. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, like over there, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Now, because of God's rich mercy... And his great love that he directed at us, and by his grace, he makes the believer alive together with Christ. Not just alive, off over, forgiven, but not with him, but alive with Christ. And that's what we see next in our chart, union with Christ. Um, Go ahead and turn to Romans 6. Scripture talks about our union with Christ generally, like we just saw in Ephesians 2.5. Um, And then there are also verses that describe our union with Christ more specifically. We are united with Christ in his death, we're united with Christ in his resurrection, and we're also united with Christ in his ascension. That's the word that just describes when Jesus went back to heaven. Now Romans 6 focuses on the significance of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And beginning in verse 8, it says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, we consider ourselves to be dead to sin, and alive to God. That's the implications of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. See, God has taken unregenerate man, what we were way over on the left, and he's crucified us with Christ, and he's buried us with Christ, and he's united us with Christ in his resurrection. And that was such a powerful work of God that God says we can never go back to that unmixed sinful condition. We cannot lose the benefits of the gospel and we cannot go back to what we were before we knew Christ. The old things have passed away. Now, do we still sin? Of course. But a believer can't go back to being a slave of sin. Another gospel benefit then you have is that we have been adopted. Ephesians 1.5 says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. You know, not every earthly father has kind intentions to his children. But your heavenly father does. That's why he adopted you. Listen to the contrast in Romans 8.15. It says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. That sounds a lot like the old man, doesn't it? Slavery, fear. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. See, when we think of our adoption, when we think of God as our Father, we need to remember that he is displaying his kindness and his nearness so that we are not slaves to fear anymore. 
We are his beloved children forever. And next we have expiation. Expiation means sin removed. It's the taking away of guilt and sin. Hebrews 9.26 says Jesus has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's expiation, to put away sin, to remove sin. And we needed that desperately. If we were going to be made right with God, our sin and our guilt had to be taken away. Now here's our next word. It's propitiation. And that means wrath satisfied. If there was any hope for us to have a relationship with God, God had to have taken his cup that was filled with wrath toward us and poured it out completely. Not a drop left, so that when he looks at it, um, he is satisfied. His wrath toward us is gone because it has been placed on his son in our place. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation shows God's love. Now another key word is redemption, and it means bought with the price of blood. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. There's only one thing that God would accept to redeem someone out of slavery to sin, and that's the blood of Jesus. And that is what God has provided to redeem us to himself. Then your next word on there is reconciliation. And that means to overcome the separation. To be at peace with God. If we were to have any hope of being with God, we had to be reconciled to him. God had to overcome the separation that existed between us and him. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. God did everything that was required while we were his enemies. Next is positional sanctification. Now, positional sanctification means to be declared holy, to be set apart for holiness once and for all. Now, the word sanctification is used two different ways in the New Testament. It's used to describe this positional sanctification, this declaration of holiness that God makes about the believer. Um, And that's what the Bible means when it refers to believers as saints. It means holy ones. And it's also used to describe the process of becoming holy. That's what we will see as we move to the right in our diagram. But here, as we talk about the gospel event of conversion, sanctification means that God, once and for all, in, in an event made us holy in his sight. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. That's what that's talking about, a positional declaration of holiness. Now, if we were to have any hope of being with God, we had to have this declaration of holiness, this sanctification done for us by God. Unregenerate man, that man, that woman, is anything but holy. We needed to be taken out of that. Our sin needed to be separated from us. 
Wrath needed to be satisfied. We needed to be redeemed, purchased out of all that we were. We needed to be reconciled to God. And God needed to set us in a place of holiness before him. And then finally, you see justification. That means to be declared righteous. Now, in Philippians 3, Paul is explaining why he counts all things to be rubbish and why he has suffered the loss of all things. And beginning at the end of verse 8, he says that he's done all of this, and I read, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Now listen to how he wants to be found. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That is justification to be declared righteous, not based on our merit, but based on faith in Christ's merit. God declares us to be righteous based on Christ's sinless record. So let's summarize the work of the gospel that we've seen here that transforms that unregenerate man or woman like we started with over on the left and makes him something completely new. We were dead, but Christ made us alive. We were alienated, But God united us with his son. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and adopted us as his very own. He expiated, he removed our sin, and he propitiated, he satisfied God's wrath against our sin through his son. He redeemed us with the blood of Jesus, having paid our debt, a debt that we could never pay on our own. He reconciled us to himself. And he set us apart in holiness. And he justified us. He declared us to be righteous in his sight. You know, the riches of what God has done for us in the gospel, they just go on and on. And you have a lot more of them in your outline under number three in the chart. All of these are part of this conversion event when the gospel benefits are applied to a sinner and she becomes a saint. It's God's work. And it's God's alone. So that brings us to number four under event, the response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do these gospel benefits come to be ours? Well, we have to believe. We actually have to believe that our penalty was paid by Jesus as our substitute to atone for our sin. We have to believe that for ourselves. It's true, but we have to believe it and we have to entrust ourselves to it. The way a person escapes from the depravity that we saw way over on the left and secures the hope of eternity with Jesus and the resurrection that we looked at already is is this. She has looked to Christ's death and resurrection and she's believed that Christ's death and resurrection is the only sufficient payment for her sin personally. That Christ is her substitute. And she looks away from herself. She looks away from self-rule and self-serving, self-reliance, self-righteousness, self-condemnation. You know, have you ever found yourself thinking, you know, if I beat myself up enough, maybe God will be happy with me? See, there's no faith in that, is there? But we look away from all of that, relying on anything in ourselves to satisfy God's wrath against our sin so that we might be forgiven and receive a righteousness that is by faith, not by what we do. And that we might repent from seeking righteousness and joy and satisfaction in anything apart from God himself. Turning from sin and turning to follow Jesus. And it's something that God brings about. 
he causes us to be regenerated so that we do repent and believe that what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection is everything we need to have our sins forgiven and eternal life with God starting now. So that's the event of conversion, and event realities have only one set of fingerprints on them. They're God's. Okay. All right, so what are the implications of the gospel for who we are now? And we kind of, those questions are actually a great lead into this. But well, we just got done talking about a person who's been regenerated. She receives the gift of faith, which now enables her to repent and believe the gospel. So she's a new creation. We already talked about 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And, and Ephesians 4.24 describes this new self as one who's been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this new creation is something completely different than what we were before. Now Colossians 3 talks about this new creation as well. So go ahead and turn there with me. And I'll just give you a heads up. You have the verses, the references in your notes, but that's about all you have. So if there's something in this section of Colossians 3 that you want to remember, this might be something that you want to jot down. So Colossians 3 walks us through how we are to live as new creations. In fact, this passage contains elements of everything that's on our chart. Um, And you may find yourself more as you are going through your Bible reading in your New Testament. Okay, what is this describing? Is this describing the old man? Is this describing a conversion event? Is this describing where I am right now as a believer? Is this describing the future? Um, And so it can just even help in your understanding of Scripture to kind of try to put it in that framework. But I'll try to point out the things as we go through. But beginning in verse 1, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, now that's describing our union with Christ in his resurrection. That's a conversion event. Um, Now, because we've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things on earth. He's talking about how we are to shepherd our thoughts in light of the gospel. And then he tells us why in verse 3. For you have died. The old self, what we saw over on the left, is dead. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And that's what we were talking about over here on the right side of the chart. That's glorification. Verse 5 begins with, Therefore, so because of the gospel... We now know how we are to shepherd our thoughts, and now he's going to tell us how we are to live in light of this. Given that our old self has died, and given that we will be revealed with Christ when he comes, verse 5, therefore, consider, that's the command, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Now all of that describes our old self, unregenerate man. That self is dead. So, as new creations, consider the members of your body, your outer man, as dead to that kind of living. Verse 8 says, But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. 
Why? Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. That's part of that conversion event. We laid aside the old self and we put on the new self when God regenerated us and enabled us to respond to the gospel's call. And the new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. See, it doesn't matter who you are. If you are a new creation in Christ, you are being renewed in God's image. And you are in this battle against sin. And he's already said to put off sin. And then in verse 12, so as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on heart of compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. And it just continues through almost the rest of the book of giving instructions for believers. See, believers are in a daily battle because of who they are in Christ to put off sin and to put on godliness. Okay, there is a lot in this little passage, so I want you just to stay with me as I just point out a couple of things that are, I hope really will clarify this condition that we're in here in this middle of the chart where it's yellow and gray. First of all, we, we see again the conversion event. Verse 3 said, you have died. Verse 9, the old self was laid aside and the new self has been put on. That happened at conversion. Verse 12 also describes event realities. When it says God chose us and he declared us to be holy and beloved, these are events that are accomplished once and for all. They're positional realities. And then second, we see in verse 10 that the new self is being renewed. We are becoming more like our creator. And that's a process. It's ongoing. We are in a renewable condition, and that is very different than what we saw about unregenerate man. And then third, in light of these realities, and because of them, because the old self has died, and because of the salvation event, and because we are being renewed to be more like Jesus, and because Christ is coming again, in light of all of this, We have commands. We have instructions. Verse 1 says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Verse 5, consider. Again, these are all, so far, all things that you do with your mind. Consider the members of your body as dead to sin. Verse 8, put aside all kinds of sin. Verse 9, don't lie. And verse 12, put on a heart of compassion, and so on. And these commands reveal at least two things. Two things for the sake of what we're going to talk about today. First of all, they reveal what this new creation has been designed for. We have been designed for holiness of life. To love God. To obey him. To love our neighbor. To put aside any residue from that old self that's hanging around. That doesn't belong anymore. We've been created to become more like Jesus, beginning with how we think and transforming how we live as well. And then the second thing that these commands reveal is that we are still in a battle with sin. We don't automatically know how we should live, and we don't automatically live that way. 
New Testament commands reveal new abilities that we have as believers, and they reveal potential areas of weakness. They show us residue from the old man that needs to be put off, and they warn us. And that is a mixed condition. We are nothing like we were. And we're nothing like we're going to be yet, or like we're going to be. We're not that yet. We are in a process of sanctification, and it's a process in which we participate. Now, you're going to see on your chart that we're in that mixed gray and yellow section, and it's page three of your worksheet. And so we've broken it down so that you can see the strengths and the weaknesses that we have as new creations. So let's start by looking at some of the strengths that describe new abilities and desires for the believer. First, you see grow in respect to salvation through the word. 1 Peter 2.2 gives the command to long for the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. That's why discipline one is all about shepherding our hearts with the word of God. And you'll find that the more we discipline ourselves to meet with God in his word, the more we long for it. And then next you see obey. John 14.21 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Believers love God. And believers obey God. In fact, love and obedience are entwined with each other. When we feed our love for God, our obedience grows. Because it's hard to love something that the one you adore hates. It's much easier to battle sin when we love and adore the one who hates that sin and died for that sin. God in his grace gives us a growing love for himself. And those who love God, you can see these on your chart, and as those who love God, we can love our neighbor. We can love our enemy. We can forgive. We can be thankful. We can repent. We can lay aside falsehood. We can be diligent. We can be humble. Before, we couldn't. We could never obey this way before Christ. We didn't want to, and we loved it that way. We never wanted to obey for the sake of exalting our Savior. If we were exalting anyone, it was ourselves. But now we can, because he's made us into something brand new that we never were before. We no longer need to obey from a fear of punishment or to get something that we want. We can obey because we love God. We can obey because he's given us his Holy Spirit to live in us. Go ahead and turn over to 1 Timothy 1.15. There's one more strength on the chart that I don't want to skip over. And it may seem strange to look at this and, may, and call it a strength. But 1 Timothy 1.15 says, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Now, those are the Apostle Paul's words. Paul declared himself to be the foremost sinner. Elsewhere, in Ephesians, he calls himself the least of all saints. So where does that leave you and me? Right? There's a paradox. See, on one hand, the believer is created in true righteousness and holiness and is growing in obedience. And yet, on the other hand, she's seeing more and more of our own sinfulness. 
It may seem strange to consider that a strength. But if we don't see our own sinfulness, how can we possibly treasure the gospel? We read it in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Thank God he has enabled us to see our own sinfulness. Because only in understanding that we, like Paul, are the foremost sinners, will we understand that when we come to God, we're not doing him a favor. We're not earning points for ourselves. The more we understand that we are the foremost sinner, the more we understand how desperate we are for God and how much he loves us. Okay, let's look back at the worksheet. When we start off as believers, you see on the chart that the guy on the left, he's a little more gray than he is yellow. That's what we look like when we get saved. And hopefully, as we grow in Christ, we're becoming more and more like Jesus, and we're becoming more and more holy. We're doing different things with our outer members than we did before, as our inner man is being renewed. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we don't lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, though that's that outer shell, though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. See, the mixed condition is a renewable condition. That condition on on the first page of your notes or over on on the left, um, that could never be renewed. There was nothing to renew. It was dead. But the new creation needs to be renewed. And that renewal is a process. And if you're a brand new believer and you're like the guy on the left who's mostly gray and maybe you get discouraged because you're not like that guy who's a little bit more yellow as you move to the right, you need to remember that big word at the top. It says process. And you do participate, but it's a process. And we need to remember that also when we're shepherding our children and in all our relationships with other believers. See, believers all have the same righteousness. It's Christ. Right? We don't add anything to his righteousness. And so when that is what we treasure, then we rejoice over every bit of righteousness that is evidence in someone else's life. That's evidence that God's grace is at work to renew them, to renew a fellow repentant sinner. So we have one more section on the chart to cover. Now remember, when we looked at Colossians 3, we made the point that these commands reveal two things. First, that the believer has new abilities and desires. And two, it reveals weaknesses. It gives us warnings. So following Christ isn't easy. Obedience can be very difficult, can't it? It can be a fight to get in God's word. It can be a fight to grow in our holiness and our obedience because we are weak. So how should we view our weaknesses in light of our mixed condition? You know, sometimes we can get so weighed down with our weaknesses and so discouraged that we can let ourselves kind of get stuck there. Like, like we think that now that we're saved, I just shouldn't struggle like this with sin. You know, I should just be behind me. Or we can get numb to our weaknesses and we can get... We can get weary in battling those sins. But the fact that we can battle is a good thing. We had no desire 
to battle for the sake of giving God glory before we were saved. We had no desire to seek God. So go ahead and turn to Colossians 2.8. We need to understand our, understand our weaknesses so that we can respond to them biblically with the gospel and with all the tools that God has given us for fighting sin and for growing in holiness. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See, Paul had to warn the Colossian believers not to be deceived. They were not immune to that just because they were new creations. And we aren't either. See, the world's way of thinking, the world's principles, the world's traditions can be really captivating. They tend to draw us in. And Paul says that needs to be battled and guarded against in a very intentional way. He says, see to it that this doesn't happen to you. Listen to how Peter tells us to fight in 1 Peter 1.13. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is what we're doing when we meet with God in his word. We are preparing our minds for action. No matter where we are reading in scripture, we can look for what it says about God, what it says about his character, what it says about sin. We can look for what it says about those who love God and about those who don't. We need to take that truth of God's word and use it to prepare our minds for action so that we are not taken captive by worldly thinking and ideas. Now, in addition to these warnings against being deceived, Galatians warns against legalism and abusing freedom. 1 John 2 warns believers against loving the world. 2 Peter 2 warns believers against false teachers. Hebrews 12 tells us that we can be hindered and entangled by sin. See, sin only wants to dominate us. And as long as we are in this mixed condition, it will always seek to entangle us and hinder our walk with Christ. The letters to the churches in Revelation show us people in the church who left their first love for Jesus. They were involved in immorality. They were self-confident. They were proud. Do you see why we must shepherd our hearts with God's word? Why we need to drag ourselves out of bed and find a place to open our Bible and meet with God and to pray? See, this is why we need to pray. God, I need you desperately. I have your word open so I can draw near to you, so that I can meet with you. I need you today. And we say that because we're weak. Sin can make our hearts become cold. It can make us grow numb to Jesus. It can never turn us back into that old man. But we can become indifferent to Christ if we do nothing. If we do nothing with our soul, if we do nothing with our heart, we will drift into coldness and we will become entangled in sin. We'll become indifferent to sin. And the next thing you know, we're best friends with that sin. And when someone tries to talk to us about it, we're defensive about that sin. We can become that, and so we must fight to shepherd our hearts every day. We need to get up and remind ourselves about what is, what is true about what God did for us in the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of what we once were and that Christ is coming again for us, and we need to remind ourselves that we need to be renewed. And we pray, God, 
Make my heart warm to you today. We do not have to feed sin for it to grow. My husband gave me an illustration of this this week. He said, I can't relate because I never could skateboard. But maybe you have. If you're on a hill and you're on a skateboard, if you do nothing, you go backwards. I don't know. I thought it was a good illustration. <laughs> I heard Scott Maxwell say that as new creations, it's like God is that we that as the unregenerate man, we were swimming downstream towards those dangerous rapids. And he plucks us out of that and turns us around, points us upstream and says, swim. Um, and sometimes it doesn't feel like we're making much headway or maybe it even feels like we're going backwards. Now, we can never go back over those falls of destruction Um, We can lose ground for a time, but we have to labor to pursue Jesus, to know him in that relationship sort of way. We have to labor for holiness of life and obedience. We labor by the power of the Holy Spirit. We do not do it in our own strength, but but there's work involved. And so that's why we start with discipline one, shepherding our hearts to the word of God to meet with the God of the word. So let's summarize some of these key descriptions of this new condition. We've seen that this is a mixed condition in which we fight against sin and we fight for Jesus, to grow in our love for him and our devotion to him. Another key characteristic of this new new creation is that we can still get entangled in sin. But being entangled in sin is not the same as being enslaved to it, being under the dominion of sin. We can get entangled, but we can be set free from that entanglement. Now, the next characteristic is that we are enslaved to God. We have a new master. We are slaves of righteousness and obedience. And so, you see it there, we are able to shepherd our hearts away from sin and to God. We are in a renewable condition. Now, we're going to conclude by looking at 2 Corinthians 4.6. Why is this creation mixed? We are loved so lavishly in the gospel and we have a new life. And the old man is dead, the old is gone, and yet we are so weak. We're still so prone to sin and so prone to wander. But God tells us why. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. He's referring to Genesis 1 and the creation. He's saying that the creator is the one who has shown in our hearts. And he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. He has shown into our hearts so that we would understand the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's talking about the gospel. That's conversion. But, verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We are earthen vessels with a treasure inside. That's a mixed condition. Before, we were just earthen vessels. But now we're earthen vessels with a treasure inside. Now, this is key. Why did God do it this way? We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. God designed it this way to display the surpassing greatness of his power. God in his holiness and his glory determined that in saving us, that he would put us in this mixed condition where we still sin so that we would draw near to him and depend on him as we battle sin and say no to sin and repent when we do sin. And as that happens, his power is seen in a way that it never would have been if we just started off over here. God did not work salvation this way to make life difficult for us. 
He didn't do it this way to make life hard for us. He did it to make life better for us. This is far better than what we were before. The fact that we are fighting against sin shows us how badly we need Jesus. And that is much better than before when we couldn't see our need for him and we didn't even want to fight against sin. I hope that's helpful to understand. In the midst of battling sin, we can actually be encouraged that we're battling. And God is using that battle to make us more like his son. That fight is evidence of new life. Remember, there was no battle before you knew Christ. So why did God put us in a condition that needs to be renewed? It's because it gives him the opportunity to display the surpassing greatness of his power as we battle sin. And so we must. And we can do that because of what we've seen today, what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And so that's why we started with this, and we laid this foundation under why we even need to shepherd our hearts, why we can and why we need to. We have the ability to resist temptation and to pursue Christ and to live lives of worship and love for God, but not in our own strength. We live in weak flesh. Our spiritual growth and holiness is dependent upon our reliance on Christ and on his spirit and on his word. It's not on ourselves so that the greatness of God is put on display. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the riches of your word and for the greatness of your salvation. Father, how I pray that you would work to um, give us understanding to help us continue to grow for the rest of our lives in understanding and in cherishing the great salvation work you've done for us. Father, I pray for our discussion time that our sharing would be rich and um, you would just help each of us to care well for one another and, and to sense the love that you've given us for one another in your body. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's see, anything else? Um, just a reminder, if you don't have a reading plan picked, uh, make sure you get one and get started on it by October 1st. Um, I forgot to mention last time, but a couple other suggestions for reading plans is to actually buy a Bible that's laid out and divided in daily readings. I put one on the, ca- the table back there just for you to look at. I got that one used for maybe a dollar or two. I don't know. It was cheap, and then you pay $4 for shipping. So if you're not sure, go look for one used, and you can find out, decide if you like it or not. And then I've used these for a number of years. I just like it because it, it's like it's like a day timer, but it has my Bible reading each day on there to get me through the word in a year, and then I can kind of just take notes in that. And it helps me when I go to small group, and it's core question time. I'm trying to remember, what have I learned in the word? I can just turn to last week, and it's right there. So that's just another idea. Um, I can tell you where to get those if you're interested in something like that. Um, let's go ahead and, and break for small groups.